0: Hello and welcome to Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star and Irish Mirrors crime podcast. I'm your host Paul Healy, I'm crime correspondent for both papers and I'm joined again today by Michael O'Toole, our crime and defence editor. Now we've met some truly evil people in the course of this job, from infamous gangland mobsters to ruthless killers and today we thought uh, we'd speak about meeting some of those people uh, tell you what we made of them and how we interacted with them. So hello Mick.
1: Paul, good afternoon.
0: Uh, This is our second in-person podcast, so uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed Friday's one.
1: (laughs) I hope there'll be a third.
0: (laughs) We'll see how we get on here now, won't we? (laughs) The difference between doing this in person is that I am uncomfortably close to Mick right now. We're both huddled over a microphone here in our office in Talbot Street. Um, But it's kind of nice to be uh, sort of uh, back in the office to some extent, did you miss it?
1: No, I don't smell. So everything's cool. <laughs> There's no problem. I, I, Yes, I did. And, you know, from our private conversation, I'm trying to get out in the road more. Like I was a lockdown reporter for ages. So uh, the last few months, been out in the road more and trying to get more into the office. Although there are no stories in the office. The stories are really outside. So, yeah, I, I knew a life.
0: Yeah, um, it's, you know, when we were in the office, like we were here, every day of the week we did get out in the road but not nearly half as much as we do now you know um but i mean the office is all kitted out now we're just trying to give people a picture of it (laughs) but uh it's i mean it used to be it's a shell of itself in a way uh, that nobody's here but it's so much more modern now um so yeah but anyway it's based in the heart of talbot street and that's where all the news is happening but we're going back in time here a little bit and we're speaking about just some of the cases that we've covered because we want to give people we we thought it would make for an interesting in fairness shout out to Billy Scanlon uh, the editor of the Irish Mirror Online and our former news editor Um, still our boss still our boss yeah very much so came up with the idea of us just telling stories of what it's like to doorstep killers because we've met a few characters over the years you've met more than I have but I've met my fair share. Um, and really, what we our purpose for this is not to glorify these killers, but it's to give people, I suppose, an insight into, I guess, their mindset, maybe some of the similarities, some of the differences, and there, there, are, there are a lot of similarities, I think, uh, with the mindset of a psychopath or someone that carries out a heinous murder. So we've we've met many of these people, but we've isolated just a few of these. Maybe we might do a series on, on this. We might speak about other people that we've had the uh, misfortune of meeting, shall we say. Um, I'm going to speak about a monster, really, by the name of Samir Saeed, um, so I just want to give people a bit of background on this, and, and Mick, I'm sure you can speak about it as well. Uh, in 2020 there, just uh, the year of the uh, the pandemic, um, we were dealing with a, a particularly harrowing case, uh, which which was... The murder of uh, a, a young a young mother at uh, well, she was 37 years of age um and her two children were found dead there in a house in Ballantir uh, that's South County Dublin and um, her name was Seema Banu the two children were Faisan and Asfira so uh Asfira was 11 year old girl and Faisan was only a six year old boy and they were found dead uh, with ligatures around their neck and um you know, it was apparent certainly early on, this is October 28th, that they were murdered. But um, there was some mystery, I would suppose, you'd put it over the condition of the mother at first, uh, Seema Banu. Now, she had a ligature around her neck as well, but there was whispers of a note uh, in the vicinity of the bedroom that she was in. And there was talk, you know, Was this a suicide note? Um, um, Was this horrible act maybe, you know, carried out by her? And I just want to say from the outset that there's no evidence of that. She certainly did not do anything to her children. But uh, because of the presence of the note and the initial, you know, early investigation, the guards had to dot their I's, you know, and cross their T's on this and make sure that the suspect that they had was the correct suspect and that there was nothing else play here in terms of you know suicide or in terms of uh, miss banu but miss banu had nothing to do uh, with the horrendous murder of her children she was in fact murdered herself
1: and we broke that story Uh, listeners may remember that for the i think it was for the first two weeks you know it was very difficult for the guards because of the evidence Mm. but then we established that they were treating it as murder and then everything changed after that
0: Yes, uh, you know, look, this was a very sensitive Garda investigation in one sense because the suspect was, uh, you know, not living in the house with his wife and with his children. So this is Samir Saeed we're speaking about. Uh, He was living in another property and there had been a breakdown of sorts in the marriage. You know, these are all facts that we learned over the course of the coming days. Um, And he had been effectively booted out and was living in another property. Um, Actually, I can remember being at the scene and making some inquiries about him because look obviously when these things happen you're looking at the husband right mm. what's up with the husband where is he is he a suspect and I made some inquiries and I found out that th- this was the day that they, they, we were all standing at the scene and we basically learned that uh, Saeed Samir had been ar- arrested uh, days prior for an assault on his wife and that he was facing charges in relation to that and that in the, in the days uh, in the coming days he was due to appear in court in relation to her assault so immediately that was a red flag I was like right okay there's something at play here we had to be very careful legally because obviously you know at that stage he was a suspect uh, and he he wasn't even a suspect at that stage so we had to be very very careful how we played it but um, we learned subsequently the guard investigation was all leading one way and a very shocking uh, element of it that we learned was that um, Sa- Saeed, Mr. Saeed was uh, on CCTV going to the scene uh, dressed as a woman. So he had himself completely shrouded up. And I'll talk about this again in a minute, but he was he had himself basically dressed uh, in, in Muslim attire as a female, uh, covering up his face and wearing sunglasses, getting onto a Dublin bus, and he went out to the house there in Ballantyre um, and so he appeared to be trying to conceal himself and then when he went into the house, you know, we know now he murdered his wife and his two children and the the, the subsequent facts that we learned, aside from the assault case, was that she was leaving him and that she was going back to India and she was taking the children and uh, she was trying to escape him and sadly he put an end to that. So this was a meticulous Garda investigation, he was not arrested immediately And we learned where he was and we made a decision to go and doorstep him. We knew that he was a suspect um, and we felt it was in the public interest to get his side of the story. And what shocked me really about this, and we'll talk about this with the other characters that we're going to speak about, was the extent to which he spoke to me. I mean, you're nervous doing these doorsteps, um, but uh, just he just spoke to me. I mean, I, I, you know when you do these doorsteps where somebody keeps talking mm. and eventually you're like, hold on a minute now, I, I'm going to have to be the one that ends this. Which, you know, because you, you're you're expecting this person's going to tell me to F off or yeah. not going to want to talk to me. But he went on and on and on and on and I couldn't believe the extent to which he spoke to me.
1: Why do you think he did that?
0: I think in one sense he, he, he was nervous. Mm. Objectively, very nervous. And I think he he just thought I'll I'll talk to this person because well now with the benefit of hindsight I think he thought that it would benefit him and his side of the story if he he spoke Uh, I was stunned that he spoke to the extent that he did Uh, I think he was a little stunned a little shocked to have a journalist called to his door Mm. and who knows what was going on in his head I mean he'd carried out a heinous crime and to an extent I think he was just living in a daze like I remember his facial expression was very much like a deer caught in headlights type expression and he just looked totally out of it I would say like I can say this now you know like our photographer Mick O'Neill it, the, the, the angle on the door was very difficult so we were trying to get a photograph of him obviously I and mean, we knew he was a suspect so we thought it was very important to get a photo of him uh, there was no easy angle on the door so Mick was effectively parked right opposite like right across the road and I mean he was you know subtlety had gone out the door and really you know anyone should have been able to see Mick taking a photo but this guy was just lost in, in his own world that he just didn't see him he wasn't like, present he it, it, it wasn't present he was just he was he was gone there was something gone in him like he was talking to me but his his mind was elsewhere did his
1: eyes look vacant
0: totally vacant mm-hmm. completely vacant and I'm not, I'm not going to read out the whole interview because people can you know check it out from their, our, themselves but we, we ran an interview in November of 2020 and he said that people were pointing fingers uh, you know because I asked him I mean you know have people cast suspicion on yourself for this and he said people are pointing he said that people are pointing fingers at him he said there are certain people who may be misguided they have misinformation so they assume things because they do not know the facts it is easy to point fingers but it's really hard to be silent and wait for the truth. Didn't know what he meant by that. Um, and he said, maybe there are, uh, there are people there who are not close enough to understand what exactly happened, so I cannot talk on behalf of anybody else. Um, it's easy for people to point fingers, but even I don't know what happened. I am also waiting for the truth. Well, he did. Ah, He's the only person who knew what happened. And, you know, the guards... At this stage, we're carrying out a meticulous investigation. As I said, they had him on CCTV wearing women's clothing uh, and trying to cover up every step of the way. Eventually, not long after this interview, he was arrested. Uh, and you might be able to speak about that process of the interview because I believe he, well, we, we know from the reporting at the time that he was speaking, but very much trying to implicate his yes.
1: wife. And I'm going to say how he was caught because it was a fantastic piece of, detect- piece of detective work because he planned this murder. As you said, it was a hijab or a bur- He A hijab, I think, wasn't it? He could he yes. to be an Islamic Muslim woman. Yes. Uh, and he was living elsewhere. I think he, it was a bus. He got up to it.
0: Yeah, so, you know, only recently, in fact... Uh, i'm going to say it was earlier this year it was uh the the inquest uh occurred for for um the family and and uh we got to hear i suppose what would have been the case against samir saeed and we saw for the first time this cctv footage really, really i mean it's shocking i wish people could see it in one sense it's clear bus footage dublin bus footage of him getting onto the bus sunglasses are set
1: on and covered up so it was a meticulously planned murder, and I remember at the time, look researching, Samir Sayed, and he was, I'm going to say he was a telecommunications engineer, wasn't he? He was a specialist was. in that sort of thing. So he obviously yeah. knew about mobile phone data, cell site analysis. We'll talk about Joe O'Reilly how he was caught. So he left his phone in his house. He did. So that anchored him at give him an alibi. Mm-hmm. Anchored him as another place. Mm-hmm. But he brought a burner phone with him. Yes. Okay? Now, he was caught because he had previously used the burner phone in that house yes. and it had connected to the Wi-Fi. Yes. And that was the smoking gun to say that his burner phone was in that house at the time when they got the phone from him, so he was banjaxed. And I think, if memory serves me well, he also wrote... Didn't he write the suicide note in the house? I think there was something about he wrote it they were able to t- place when it was done. Well, there was a
0: note that... Um, it was on a computer. that 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 uh, that Miss Banu did write uh, but we learned in the course of the uh, the inquest that she effectively did so under coercion mm. and this was in the days prior to the murder that he had he seemingly had gotten her to write this note where she said that uh, you know things were her fault and she's sorry um, and she it, it's quite harrowing but she did film herself she sent a video to him which they recovered from his phone which was played in the inquest um, it was very hard to watch this because this is one of the last clips of her alive and she is just you could see how in fear of him she was so she'd made earlier videos which she sent to, sorry there weren't videos that she'd made there were video calls that she made to her family which the family actually had recordings of and in it she was saying, I'm afraid of him, I think he's going to kill me, I have to get out of here. Very different to the woman who made the video that she sent to him, which is, you know, uh, this is all my fault and I'm so sorry. And effectively she wrote a letter, I don't, I don't have it in front of me now, mm-hmm. but to that effect, which could, I guess he then used to uh, to try and make it look like she had killed the kids and killed herself. Um, horrendous, really. Uh, was, you could see the level of fear that she had in him that she wrote that note in the first place. Um, that she was really, really afraid that he was going to take her life and sadly he did. Another thing he did to try and cover up his tracks was um, he turned on the tap upstairs in the bathroom and basically tried to, um, you know, uh, just drown the whole scene and get rid of any kind of forensic evidence um, that didn't really work in his favour in the end.
1: So he was a cold and calculating killer?
0: 100%. I think what what shocked me about that is that he carried on with his... With his Normal day to day activities. He arranged for the funeral. The family in India did not want, I mean, they suspected him immediately, obviously, because of the conversations that she had been having with them on WhatsApp and video calls. And they, you know, in their tradition, um, it's very sacred about the, the period of time that you have to be buried. And so, um, Samir Saeed, as the next of kin, and at this point he hadn't been arrested, he had every right then to go and to have the funeral take place here and to have them buried. In the Newcastle Cemetery, we went to that funeral. Muslim funerals or something else? So you get to attend, and we were invited up to the burial site. And we went up, and we, I watched him uh, bury his children. He got into the grave with them, and put on this show. And we can say it now, you know. He put on this this show. He was sobbing over them and kneeling over their bodies, and just, you know. Uh, in hindsight, it's incredible that, you know, this is the man responsible for taking their lives and he was there in the grave with them. And the family really didn't want them buried there, but that's what happened. And, you know, that that's where they'll remain because they believe in their tradition, you know, they've moved on now to another place.
1: And th- this is the reason why Billy, men- Billy Scanlon mentioned, talking and why I'm keen to talk about it. Unfortunately, killers do not have the mark of Cain on them. Do you know what I mean? They are, there's no obvious sign that they murdered someone so you're talking to a normal human being and you were talking to Samurai Sayed. now he killed three people maybe a week before you we spoke to him two weeks mm-hmm. but out, on the outward i'll talk about about all the other killers there is nothing there is no mark on him there's no horns on him it's just a normal person
0: well as i say apart from the the, the vacant mm-hmm. stare look in his eyes I mean, he carried about, I mean, we, we observed, you know, what he was up to. He went about his, his day walking up the streets, going shopping and just, you know, trying to to put on a performance, as I say, I guess. But, you know, it's that vacant look in his eyes. And I I knew when I was interviewing him, you know, I had a strong suspicion. I was like, this guy has murdered his family. I'm interviewing a killer here. You know, obviously he hadn't yet been charged, but there was just something... um there was something uh, I can't quite describe it but there was just this feeling you know of disingenuous disingenuous sort of behaviour from him I mean I would say it took about 20 20 minutes into the conversation before suddenly he started to cry and to me they were like crocodile tears you know I mean it's like as if he was trying to cry on cue he was saying a lot of very devastating things but he was you know he totally vacant as I said he then kind of started to cry um said things like I've lost my family Uh, I wake up believing that this could just be a bad nightmare I wake up believing I I wake up and everything is over Um, you know he said they're gone from this world but they're not gone from me I see them every night in my dreams no you wonder. Know. Yeah, no wonder. Um, I mean, he was ruthless and he assaulted her back in India as well. Uh, there's a there's a history of abuse there. Sadly, she was totally in fear of him. And I think the most de- depressing part about it is that she was trying to escape him. Mm-hmm. But Did but, he assault
1: uh, her in, in Dubai or the Middle East somewhere? I think he assaulted her there as well.
0: You could be correct. I know that he did in India for certain, mm-hmm. yes. Um, I just think that's the saddest part about it is that she was done with him. She was trying to escape and he would not let her the end result of this is that the guards were taking a prosecution against him and the week before the trial happened he killed himself in his prison cell um so the family never saw justice in one sense um and we we only we only heard i suppose the harrowing evidence against him in full at that inquest earlier this year where we saw those videos of uh, miss banu and the children uh, just shock and stuff where she was in total fear of him um yeah, and then that, that footage of him, I mean, I in a way, I think people should see that footage because you could see, you know, how he tried to pull off the perfect crime, the arrogance of the man, you know, the tr- the, the true arrogance of him is, is displayed in that CCTV footage, because while he did cry to me and say, they're in my dreams and all this, and maybe some of that was genuine because maybe he was haunted by what he did, uh, the, the, the true man was that guy on the bus covering himself up, that guy with the crocodile tears, burying his children against the wishes of the family and carrying on as though he hadn't just murdered three people. There's got to be something psychologically wrong and we'll talk about that with the other persons. Um, You've met a couple of characters as well over the years and you you want to talk about Paul Hickey.
1: Yes, so Paul Hickey, um, it's one of the most memorable interviews I uh, have carried out and actually strangely enough, Billy Scanlon was, was... involved in that he was the first person I rang after the interview rang him from Spain essentially there was a lady called Celine Conroy uh, was married to Paul Hickey and had a couple of kids and they were in Alicante in Spain I think it was 2006 or 2007 yeah. and he, he essentially beat her to death in front of the children very young kids uh, give her a horrible horrible death 30 you know 35 different attack blows shall we say it was really really bad mm. so in 2008, he went on trial in a place called Elche, which is near Alicante, quite a big town. I remember being in the court. So he got done, and it, I think he got 15 years or 12 years, something like that, he was done. But in the court, it was very strange. He started winking over at me. There were maybe five or six Irish journalists there, and he started winking over at me and sort of going, oh, how's it going, how's it going? I don't know how, maybe he recognised me or something. And I... Um, gave my card, I won't say who to give it to, but I gave it to somebody in the court to pass it on to him who was in contact with him. So he was convicted in jailed. And the day we were, Mick O'Neill, and I think it was Mick O'Neill, I oh don't know, it was Jim Walpole. We were going to head back when I got a call from him saying, will you come into the prison and talk to me? And I said, wow. I would eat your hand off, bite your hand off to go in and talk to him. So I did. And I interviewed him for about an hour. And he sat across from me and it's, you know, you see it in the American movies, it's enclosed and there's a glass pane, heavy glass between us and we were speaking mm. on, a, on a phone to each other but mm. we're sitting this close and he was and he told me about the whole thing and he told me how he, his, his kids begged him to stop when he was killing her and he was telling me all oh, the crack and you could see that he felt remorseful but an awful lot of time he was smiling at me and having the chat and seeing what the crack was and so... I, I sort of went, th- I had to go in and I couldn't take notes, so I had to come out of it. As soon as I got out of it, I started typing up my contemporaneous notes and I remember checking with the lawyer. I said, yeah, look, no, they're, they're fine, they're contemporaneous. within was in like, within five minutes, literally within two or three minutes of coming out of the prison, just started typing up furiously. Then he spoke about how he killed her and, you know, he was talking about how, he, you know, his fears of being sexually assaulted in prison and all that sort of stuff and how he, you know, He felt really bad about it. But I just remember...
0: But was it just all poor me?
1: Um, No, he he did talk about Selena a lot. He did talk about his guilt a lot. Um, But he was a wee bit self-centred. Maybe Yeah, maybe there was the poor mouth on him. But I learned subsequent to that, because I was in contact with someone who was close to him, that his mental health deteriorated significantly Mm -hmm. while he was in prison. And he's he's back in Ireland, and I know a paper got a, a grab picture of him. About three years gone, he has completely changed, he's lost a lot of his hair, he's grown a big beard. When I was talking to him, he was clean shaven, he had a crew cut, he looked quite young and quite fit. He was in his, I'm going to say he was in his 20s when he killed Celine. But I sat across from that man, probably for an hour, and he talked about how he beat somebody to death in front of their kids. Mm -hmm. And it was the, what struck me was the matter-of-fact way about how he described killing somebody. No, he was in prison, and he was doing his time, and he's back here. But just, I've never forgotten just the... It wasn't callous. It was casual. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It, there was no fire in his eyes about beating somebody to death. There was no, oh, my God. It was just very matter-of-fact. Mm-hmm. And that has always struck, stuck with me. Mm.
0: Do you think that he was genuinely remorseful?
1: <sighs> yes. Mm. I... I Yes, I think he definitely regretted what happened, and he regretted Celine's death and murder, and he regretted what happened to him. So there was a bit of self-interest, but Samar Syed planned that murder, hmm. and you know he spoke to you, so he was in denial. Paul Hickey was not in denial. He was very open very honest about everything that happened about the kids begging him all that sort of stuff so I think he was a different person to Syed put it that way
0: yeah I I mean I think Syed must have displayed and we're not psychologists but Mm -hmm. there's definitely psychopathic tendencies if you're going to murder your whole family and then carry on as normal Uh, there's something there mentally different from the average person but do you think that in the case of Paul Hickey he just he did he, he did an act that he now regrets yes you know? yeah. and
1: and I know that he has he had difficulties he's back home and he, and, and he has difficulties so you know drink and drugs were mentioned I that was mentioned That they're not excuses it's just you know context and what he said but yes you could definitely see that he regretted everything that he did and I bought and, and here's the other thing like it or not I connected with that person on a human level mm-hmm. you know there are. I have met psychopaths. I will happily talk about them. It's just and there's there's another man who I believe to be a killer. We'll, we may talk about if we we'll have time. But on a human level, I connected or clicked with him, and he was and he opened up and started speaking to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that was, but he did. And I don't know why he picked me in the in the in the court, but he did. And he spoke to me and he told me his story.
0: We should probably talk about how rare it is to actually be able to access a prison and interview somebody. I mean, how did mm. that come about? I I,
1: I I chanced my arm, essentially. Do you know what? I always find when you're abroad... Do you, you, you not know, find this? When you're abroad in a job, you, maybe you're less inhibited or... Mm-hmm. I don't know what it mm-hmm. is. You it know, wouldn't regret. happen here. <laughs> no, well, it just... I don't know. Maybe the shackles are off or whatever. But I I, I, I I saw him looking over at me and winking and going, Oh it's going... I thought, fuck it, I'm going to do it. Because you wouldn't get to do that in Ireland. There's Mm -hmm. no chance there'd be prison guards and guards and everything. So I just gave somebody who had access to him my card. And he rang me and I got the call and I queued up for about an hour to get into the prison. And then I got in, I had to hand over everything, walk through the the security, everything. And I sat down and, yeah, he chatted away and he was very open and very frank.
0: It's interesting, I mean, not all these killers are the same, but there's a common thread, I think, in in interviewing a lot of them, I don't know whether he fits this bill, but the poor mouth sort of aspect. I mm. mean, even if they are apologetic for what they've done, certainly there's a common thread in people I've interviewed that, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, but look at all the bad things that have happened to me and I don't deserve this, that, and it becomes about them. That's a common thread I've noticed. I don't know, is it a psychopathic thing, a narcissistic thing, or what it is, but it's a common trait I find with a lot of people that have murdered.
1: Yes, um. So there's different types of murders. So murders let's talk about Joe O'Reilly, right?
0: Yeah. Joe O'Reilly but...
1: planned that murder. Mm-hmm. And it was the first real definition of a psychopath. A psychopath has a lack of empathy. So in other words, it's all about what he can do. So he wanted Rachel Calady, his wife, out of the way because he was in a relationship and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So he viewed her as an obstacle not As a human being, and that's a lack of empathy, and that's what a psychopath is somebody has no empathy. So, um, I was, I was just telling you off air talk about O'Reilly. He would walk, we, we did that trial in uh, 2007, what a massive trial it was every day! And he was convicted on a Saturday. Um, and he would walk in, it was in the four courts before the CCJ was built, and he'd walk in and he shoulder barged me one day. I, <laughs> I, he's a big fella, um, but it. I think he could have picked anybody. I was just in his way. He went boom. But he was a bit of a bollocks Mm-mm. for that. I think he did it to a couple of people. But um, we can talk about him and Graham Dwyer, right? Th- th- there's a similar thread between both men. Now, both men, plan- in my opinion, both men plan the murders and they're, and they're done and dusted, and that- that's grand. But especially with Dwyer, there's an imperceptible moment, and I've spoken about this before. There's an imperceptible moment when you're found guilty of murder, when it's as if their aura changes so he went from being a citizen to being a convict mm. and i think the same thing happened with o'reilly o'reilly's liberty o'reilly was on bail to our wasn't but O'Reilly, so o'reilly could come in and out of court every day no problem but once that guilty verdict was in he had to st- sit there and be told what to do and it always strikes me and it, you can have sort of an empathy for no matter how bad a person he was his liberty once that four person i think it was a woman said guilty it was game over for O'Reilly and he could not move. He couldn't go to the toilet without asking. Mm. Up until then, he'd been a normal citizen. The same with Dwyer. I noticed when Dwyer was found guilty, it's as if he shrank. He had guilt Dwyer had been coming in, he was in custody, but you could see he was laughing and joking to himself thought it, you know, he thought he was going to be acquitted, he thought he was gonna, you know, I know he thought he was gonna go and live abroad and everything jury came in guilty and it was game over for him and they both sort of shrank in that moment I think it's maybe like a hammer blow that it hit them but I think with both those men they definitely planned those murders
0: yeah it's funny I'm just thinking of this as you're talking about it I remember the sentence or sorry the, um, the it was D-Day in the trial of Paul Wells uh, Paul Wells uh, murdered his former best friend um, uh, Kenneth O'Brien mm. And uh, he then chopped up his remains with a chainsaw. He pleaded not guilty. He was found guilty of murder. I remember being in court the day that he was convicted. And uh, that—that's a similar sort of thing. He shrank. Uh, he was a very normal-looking person. That's what strikes me about him is that uh, he just looked like a normal person. You wouldn't look at him twice. He, you know, he was dressed in a suit and he was, you know, just looked like everybody's average middle-aged man but what he'd carried out was so heinous uh, it's hard to imagine someone like him doing it but the moment that he was convicted he just looked a hell of a lot smaller and his actions subsequently you know he pleaded not guilty but uh he's since apologized and and, and I think even at the end of that case he said sorry to the family so he'd lost his you know his battle and he kind of accepted then he found me guilty hands Sorry. up hands up. Mm. but his arrogance the whole way through the trial was thinking he was going to get off
1: but do you think that's arrogance is a sort of self protection and self delusion because if he goes in with the mindset I'm banjoed here I wonder you know he has to he or she charges murder if they're fighting it as most people do you know he or she has to protect that innocence because you know the jury are looking at him or her so you may be reality strikes and you're deflated and you go i don't have to fight i don't have to put up this front anymore
0: yeah it's interesting it's it's it, you know we talk about that arrogance I'll, I'll speak about another fellow i wanted to speak about which is anton Mulder. um i don't know if you covered this case yeah but, uh, yeah
1: yeah he was uh he was the, uh, a fast food restaurant manager he was in, yeah was it, was it ashburn or
0: uh, he's he's originally from um, South from Africa, Dunshockland. He's from South Africa, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Originally, yeah. Dunshockland County, Mead. Uh Similar to Joe O'Reilly, uh, in that he murdered his wife. He's a he's a wife killer. The differences, though, are interesting, uh, because he's a free man. Um, he's free after just fifteen years in prison for his for the murder of his wife. Uh, he murdered his wife, Colleen uh, Colleen Suzanne Mulder, on the seventeenth of December two thousand and four in Dunshockland. Um, and he was released uh, just there during the pandemic 2021 learned of his release and learned that he was living down in a house in Healy in Wicklow we went down and we doorstepped him again this is another one where I kind of thought someone's going to shut the door on me or tell me to F off uh, again we spoke for probably half an hour and then I made my excuses and I left uh, Anton Mulder would have probably talked to me for two days if he wanted to Um in a way, full of remorse, uh, you know. When I asked him, "Are you sorry for the murder of your wife?" He said, "Oh, of course I am," but he was very much of the view that he served his time. But I, what I thought was the most interesting part of that interview was that he moaned about himself a lot. It's like, "Yeah, sorry for what I did, but now you know, look at me. I'm living in this squalor in this middle of nowhere, and poor me. And I have no friends, and I can't get a job." And he actually said that he would rather go back to prison. Wow. Which stunned me because I was like, you're so lucky because you're you're a murderer. You're serving a life sentence, but you've been freed after 15 years because he was well-behaved behind bars. He did all the courses and he admitted his guilt. That's the most important thing. It's the difference between him and Joe O'Reilly. So Joe O'Reilly will probably serve twice what Anton Mulder has served because he refuses to engage and refuses to admit his crime um, and Anton mother actually met Joe O'Reilly, uh, or you know, sorry, he spoke about Joe O'Reilly, and he, he, you know, he was he had a great opinion on Joe O'Reilly. He felt that you know he he hasn't fessed up to what he did, so he deserves to stay in there. That was his view. But he said he had buddies in prison. He enjoyed playing pool with them, and he had things to do in prison. Whereas on the outside, he had nothing. But that that's why I thought he was interesting to bring up because I thought he had such arrogance, in spite of you know you've got out of prison after such a short period of time. Uh, it was all poor me. Uh, I can't. And he also said, I can't leave Ireland. I can't go back and see my family because if you're serving a life sentence, remember, he's still serving that life sentence even though he's out.
1: So he's out on license.
0: On license. He can never leave this country. And to him, that's a prison sentence. But I, I just thought, I mean, he's 60 years of age. He's got his life ahead of him. Uh, I just re- I reached at the quote he said listen here some days I sit here and I go well in prison I had a lot of friends socialising playing games and pool and on the outside that's gone you'd nearly rather be in there with people you get on with and have a chat with some days you want to be out and some days you want to go back
1: listeners will go alright okay so he's having the crack in prison I don't care about let them have playstations let them have xboxes let them have their tvs mm-hmm. the lack the loss of your liberty is massive yeah. What I keep on saying about, you know, Joe Raleigh, sit down, can I go to the toilet, please, Mr. Warder? Yeah, you can. Mm. That loss of liberty overarches everything. Mm. Peels, Xboxes and all, into insignificance. That man was a prisoner and his liberty. We can all sit here. We've never had... We've never been deprived of our liberty, and it's massive.
0: Yeah, but I just... I felt that in that energy that he was looking for sympathy, mm. and I didn't have any sympathy for him, you know? I... I, I You know, in one sense, I was appreciative of the fact that he spoke to us and that he told his story and that he apologized to his victim and to his victim's family. But it's strange that that apology is then followed by, but listen to all the bad things that have happened to me. I feel if you're genuinely remorseful you just wouldn't be moaning about yourself mm-hmm. and as I said that seems to be one of the common threads of all these people that they do seem to feel very sorry for themselves
1: there, this isn't a murderer but I'm going to talk to you about remorse about one person um, I was privileged to be in this I was actually in the judge's chambers there was a a, a, a man who was sexually assaulted indecently assaulted as a child and it he, he was dealt with in the district court the old Bridewell court mm-hmm. okay and I can remember uh, the judge dealt with it in chambers because it was in camera so the victim was there the victim's mother was there the judge was there and the criminal was there and you know justice, open justice I asked the, the clerk could I get in mm-hmm. and he let me in and I remember sitting there and it's one of the most moving things I've ever seen the, the abuser apologised to the victim Wow. and he goes I'm sorry I'm truly sorry right And he was an older man, the victim was a a, a lovely man. And the mother of the victim was there. And it's one of the most powerful things I have ever sat and witnessed. Hmm. And I felt privileged to witness it because that man, the victim received agency or power by the humility and the abject apology of his abuser. And I certainly felt very privileged to there. But I, I, I got that sense. You know, you're talking about self-pity. I got the sense that that man's apology was real. right? And it was, it, it was very emotional being there, actually.
0: Uh, I mean, I suppose that's great to see. And you hope to believe in rehabilitation. But um, you know, there's something about certain individuals, like you're speaking about O'Reilly mm. and Graham Dwyer and certainly Samir Saeed, there's an extra element there I mean with, with Said I mean he couldn't even face justice he decided to kill himself mm. you know out of cowardice I think um, but yeah you'd hope to believe in in rehabilitation
1: for some people Yeah, so what I always find interesting is say with Samir Said okay um, he killed three people mm. you spoke to him when he was a suspect mm. but he escaped justice say Graham Dwyer and Joe O'Reilly they were walking around the streets people were interacting with them before they were charged and whatever and they were killers but they're only called killers afterwards after they were convicted mm-hmm. but there are killers out there who haven't been convicted and we're going to talk i'd like to talk about one killer uh, he was never convicted but he, i think he was probably behind 16 17 murders that's a man called Eamon dunn he was called the dawn um and he led a reign of terror 2007 2006 2010, when he was murdered by the Kenan cartel. Mm-hmm. Um and I had an interaction with him. I'd been writing, and we, you know, we write about this man because he'd been, as I say, he'd been behind a whole rig of murders. And one day he was in the new CCJ, f- for a speeding offence or a motor and a fels. And I'd been writing him, writing about him, calling him the psycho. And the key, he, we were in a couple of us were in court for him, just to, to write about, you know, criminal, whatever. And it was adjourned, and everybody trooped outside. And I was sort of daydreaming, and all I heard was, Are you Michael O'Toole? Oh. I went, and I looked up and it was even done. I went, Oh, fuck. I went, <laughs> and I went, So I remember a guard telling me, Never show fear. Mm-hmm. Don't antagonize the thing, don't show fear. So I tried to be passive and go, Yeah, I am yeah. And he was, Why are you calling me a psychopath? You were saying I'm a killer, right? Oh, my God. And everything was through your head. And uh, I was like, No, I, I, I had. But what do you do? And uh, and he was getting hot and heavy for about 10 seconds. And then he was pulled away by somebody, right? And when it was happening, you don't have time to think. But I always remember that day, it was the CCJ at the bottom of Phoenix Park. And I had parked my car up in Phoenix Park itself, okay? And I remember walking along and I was going up the hill from Phoenix Park, the, the, the... the entrance there at the CCJ walking up the hill and my knees gave away because it just started to hit me and my knees buckled I said Jesus Christ because this man I mean I know that his gang were taking uh, pictures of journalist cars and there's a fella who you and I know he had to have serious security because yeah, of this yeah. he was a very dangerous man he was giving out about the media and he confronted me and that was in February I always remember it was February 2010 and he was shot dead in April 23rd of April 2010 but just him coming up to me and looking at me and really putting it up to me and I I got very nervous Mm -hmm. and I'm going to tell you another one about my Wayne Dundon story can I tell you this quickly?
0: I was just going to say there seems to be a long list of people who have either uh, threatened you or made uh, threatening language around you who then ended up dead I (laughs) know I like (laughs) the the, the circle that they lived in he's doing time for murder and obviously
1: he was a notorious criminal from Limerick, Mm. and obviously he's doing life for murder and before he was Charged and convicted. I don't know how, but I remember we got a tip off that he was coming into Dublin Airport mm-hmm. from Cancun in Mexico. So we were waiting it was before Terminal Two. So we were waiting, you know, like you'd be waiting for your brother or your family at the at the airport saying, Welcome home. There were a couple of us waiting for him. And I'll never forget it. He walked out, you know, the week door, you walk out, he walked out and he pirouetted. He I always my mind's eye, I can see him putting his right foot forward and then you know he didn't even skip a beat. He saw us and turned and walked back out. Okay? <laughs> but then afterwards, you know, to go, what's he going to do? He's not going to stay there. So he came out and he gets stuck into me. And uh, he suggested that I should come up next Tuesday. Right. Okay. And he also politely suggested that I could lose a few pounds. Oh, my God. In that context. Right. But I have. So that's grand. But he did. And he really gets stuck yeah, into me. Yeah, look at you now. And uh, I always remember. It. So he basically called me a fat come up next Tuesday. <laughs> right, going, right how am I going to handle this and I just I didn't react I just walked along and there's a picture of me holding but sure I'm not fat anymore so it's grand but uh, <laughs> just the venom
0: and he's in prison and he's in prison yeah we, you've met some characters over your career um, you know and I, I've I've met some myself but not quite on the scale of, of aiming the Don Dunn um, there's someone we're going to speak about at the end of the podcast as well who's very interesting but yeah I just wanted to mention Mick Hoolan Michael Hoolan Uh who is himself uh, one of Ireland's longest serving prisoners um and killers and we've recently did a story on him and I, I think he's worth mentioning because he's a unique case he's somebody that has served 42 years in prison uh, and and why he's worth bringing it up it's because I think it's an interesting conversation at that. at what point do you release a murderer and say they've done their time and they were trying to make a decision about Michael Houlihan for some time. He was serving time in Shelton Abbey Open Prison. It's called an open prison because it's a, it's a relatively relaxed... Uh, it's still a prison, but it's there in uh, in uh, Arklow. And, um, you know, relative freedom. I mean, they have like a kind of a pitch-and-put course there and they can walk the grounds and they get day releases. But Michael Houlihan, I was told, was a very troublesome prisoner, a very difficult prisoner to deal with. I mean, his crime if you were to compare it to some of the other people that are in there it's not necessarily the worst it's still murder but it's not the most heinous uh, in terms of he admitted his guilt um, you know and he was engaging with services but for some reason or other they wouldn't release him my information was that he was just in prison a bit of a box, that he was difficult to deal with and causing trouble and so they felt keep him in there but uh, earlier this year they, they finally decided there in July so only last month or two months ago uh, to release him after 42 years now by our calculations he's not the longest serving I think there's someone in there that's slightly longer nearly 50 years in there um, but he is he's one of the top three people that have ever served the most amount of time behind bars so we doorstep him. Um just to, to, to tell people what he's in there for he murdered a woman in Galway by the name of Mary Kitt she was a 45 year old woman living on her own Uh, in in Salt Hill and Galway he murdered her in June of 1980 and uh, he'd been in prison pretty much ever since then but again shockingly happy to talk yapped away to me for ages and very apologetic and very much you know I've done my time I now want to get on with my life that maybe is one of the few cases where I kind of felt like well yeah fair enough I mean 42 years is a long time and he was apologetic for his crime he said I've done a long time so no one can say that I haven't served enough time it was 42 years and he apologized and said look he can't take back what he did it was a robbery gone wrong he said um you know and it's very tragic for them and for the family and I panicked and there's nothing more you can do about it so look uh I think hopefully that's a case of someone can turn their life around maybe hopefully you know I mean he is 60 years of age now so she, you know um, no he's older than that he's he's nearly 70 wow um, he's 68 so you know maybe hopefully he can spend the rest of his, his free life now uh, being a good person and uh, can turn his life around so I think he's one of the exceptions to the rule in spite of the amount of time that he served in prison uh, hopefully he is a better person now
1: and so he effectively has served more than double what the average life sentence at the moment is of which is 20 years mm-hmm. so he's done double that more
0: it's i mean that's an extraordinary amount of time there's very few people if you if you commit capital murder that's murdering you know if you murder a Garda you can be found guilty of capital murder you get a minimum you know Aaron Brady's in there now for a minimum of 40 years but it would be very rare for anybody else really to serve uh, that amount of time
1: yes but but Brady there was, a, I think there was a case about this he will get 25% remission so he will serve 30 years well there you go so, he, so he'll so he be even longer than Brady he was yeah. done for the capital murder of the guard Adrian Donoghue
0: I mean people know about Malcolm MacArthur you know I mean he he served I think 35 years in there so it's very exceptionally rare 42 years but the last person we want to talk about is Dutchie Holland and you had some very interesting encounters with him
1: yes it must have been 2005 I think he got out of prison so he was wasn't he in prison. He was in prison over in England, and he got out anyway. Was, yeah. We went over to Rome. He had uh, Giovanni Di Stefano was his lawyer, legal advisor, and he got out of prison. And we, we were at the airport in Rome, and we got him at the airport, and we chanced to arm and see what he do a sit down interview with us, and he did himself and Jim Walpole again, and um, I spoke to him again for about an hour, and we put. I asked him did he murder Veronica again? and he said no, but he was lying. You could see in his eyes he was lying, and he, but he, he. he I again I, w- I wish it would be co- it would be better if these people were ogres mm. but they're not ogres mm. and Dutchie Holland was an extremely likeable, extremely approachable and extremely talkative man and I came away thinking, Jesus, why has he got involved in crime because he struck me, his image I, look, I interviewed, or I did the story about the, the Gilligan book which is which has been in the Star of the last couple of days and um, you know, in that book, Gilligan, who says Dutchy Holland didn't murder Veronica Cairn a guard said in court that she believed he did. But Gilligan says that he believes Dutchy Holland killed seven or eight people; that he was a hitman. Wow. Okay. So, um, and I was going, and I my belief and suspicion was that he had murdered Veronica Cairn at the time when when I interviewed him in two thousand and five. But he was very very amiable, and I'm going to give you an indication of what he was like. Uh, two thousand and six. December 2006, a man called Martin Highland was murdered, nicknamed Marlowe. Marlo, okay, yeah. and he his gang, he was with Eamon Dunn. Eamon Dunn probably murdered Marlowe Highland. took over the gang. And his gang killed a lady called Baiba Salite in swords in November 2006. Really infamous murder. And I mean Martin Highland was murdered. And we were at his funeral. His funeral was in Cabra. We went into a coffee shop. A couple of us went into a coffee shop beforehand. And so this is probably a year, maybe more, after I'd spoken to Dutchie Holland. And... Uh, and we were sitting there, girding our loins, you know, doing a gangland funeral. Mm. In fact, I remember at that funeral, an RT cameraman was hit by a van at it.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, Gosh. and there was a
1: guard investigation. I, I don't, don't know if it was a mourner or whatever, but there were lots of bogey people there. We went in our duds, as we, as we tend to do. But we went into a cafe in Cabra beforehand, and Holland was there. And he goes, "Uck, Michael, how's it going? How are you? Are you well? Mm. So that was the sort of man he was. He was very, very approachable and very... I've always, always remembered that. And I've always remembered asking him, did he murder Veronica Gearn? And I always remember his face when he lied. Right. But, but, you was believe. Very, but he was... Yes, but he was... Again, it's this whole point. They don't... They're not ogres. They walk among us. There are killers out there, Paul, who have not been caught. Look at Green Dwar. Green Dwar had a normal life after yeah. the murder of Lane O'Hara. And it was only that the of detective work of Dunleary... Uh, Black Rock detect- District Detective Unit that nailed him, he would have had a completely normal life afterwards so they walk among us. And it's only when they're en masse that we can say they're killers. Mm. It's, it's fascinating for me.
0: Yeah, a lot of the people we've talked about today are, are, are outliers, unique cases, I suppose. Um, although, I suppose Anton Mulder murdering his wife, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, femicide is, is the most common, seems to be the most common uh, form of murder in this country and it happens time and time again.
1: It, it's the most common form of Femicide. Most women are killed by their partners or ex-partners. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, if That's what we're reading and hearing about and it has happened increasingly more. Something like that. Um. We've talked about a variety of people but would you say that they have anything in common? All of
1: them? Uh, just would you say self-obsession mm. uh, self-pity
0: mm.
1: it's about them. It's rarely about the victim. Yeah. Uh, there are cases when they say look I, I did terrible things but in most cases like I, I know for example Dwyer protests his innocence says things that she would, you know, there's no evidence she was murdered and all that sort of I was trying to prevent her taking her own life all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. there is a strain of killer who is really self-obsessed yeah and arrogant yes
0: yeah completely well it's been fascinating uh, thanks very much Michael might see you in the office again sometime this year maybe maybe next year <laughs> thanks for listening
1: Thank you.